The HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello and welcome again to the HD Insights Podcast. I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communications, and Outreach with the Huntington Study Group. On this episode, we spoke with Kat Martin, Executive Director at the Huntington's Disease Youth Organization, or as most people are more familiar with, HDEO. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Kat to talk about the challenges facing youth that are impacted by HD, whether it's serving as primary caregiver, whether it's being at risk for Huntington's disease itself. And Kat does a great job on drawing from her own experiences serving as a, a primary caregiver in a family that has dealt with Huntington's disease. She talks extensively about her experience with her, her hometown and how it really came together as a village to be the foundation of her future work, her future involvement uh, with the uh, Scottish Huntington's Association, as well as her current role with HDO. I, I think you'll absolutely love this episode. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation with Kat Martin. Well, Kat, thank you for joining us on this episode of the HD Insights podcast. I know um, I was hoping to speak with you in person at the HSG 2019 in Sacramento, but uh, I think you and I were both uh, pretty tied up um, meeting with folks and and enjoying that conference. But uh, again, thank you for, for calling in and having this chance to connect after that meeting. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was an amazing meeting. Um, especially for HDO, we HSG were so kind to us in terms of giving us quite a big platform at this year's conference, which meant that we were incredibly busy between workshops and the booth and just catching up with lots of really important uh, insights that were going on. So yeah, it's been a really good conference and really busy, which is a good thing, but then it stops you getting to do things like this. So I'm really glad we could do it by phone. Absolutely. Well, uh, let's uh, let's start out. I want to talk a, a little bit about you know your background and, and kind of where you came from and how you got to this point. So let, let's start kind of at the beginning. So you you come from a Huntington's disease family. Can you talk a little bit about the impact that HD has had on your family? Yeah. So um, I always think I'm one of the lucky ones. So I grew up with HD. I don't know. A life without HD. So the year I was born, my grandmother was diagnosed symptomatic with uh, Huntington's and previous to her being diagnosed, um, her sister had been diagnosed um, and that led to a realisation that my great-grandmother um, had been misdiagnosed. So uh, we grew up with it but um, I'm incredibly lucky to have two quite forward-thinking parents who valued our trust and our honesty to be able to deal with Huntington's. So they never lied to us um, about Huntington's. So we grew up always knowing about it. We knew the name of it. At that point in time, it was still Huntington's career. Um, and we were involved in uh, lots of aspects of my grand's care. Lots of conversations with people about what Huntington's was and, and as a family we kind of learned together. What that led to was really seeing Huntington's as something that everybody had. So I grew up in a really small village in Scotland and there were more than one person in the village had Huntington's because we were a big family. So we, we weren't the typical isolated, um, nobody knows what it is family we were oh this is something that's in the village there's only 370 people in the village and maybe 10 percent of the village um, are impacted by this because they're family members 
So we were lucky. Um, but mum and dad kind of made sure that we were always um, told what was going on. They did the whole age and stage appropriate conversations with us about Huntington's. But they also gave us access to uh, specialist teams should we need it. So I've got really clear memories of being in my grandmother's house when I was probably about seven or eight and the geneticist actually being in the house doing skin blood samples of family members and talking about Huntington's and it all, se it all seemed like a party in my young head but that was how we treated it um, and as we grew up and we learned more about it and my family became more involved in raising awareness of Huntington's and the village joined in with that awareness and fundraising it just became part of life it became part of what happened when you grew up really and when I was I think I was about 15 the first time I went into the genetics clinic and started asking questions around about my own risk what that meant um, and that kind of coincided with my grandmother passing away and my mum becoming symptomatic. So that transition is always difficult for anybody. And when you're 15 and hormonal and mm -hmm. you've just lost, you know, your grandmother who was a hero in your eyes to your mum then going down the same path, it's always hard. But I was really informed for my age. I was really informed about what this meant. And I had access to really good people to be able to say that. Um, so we, we were... and. As a family, we spoke about it really openly. So I was, my mum and dad knew because they took me to the genetics clinic, but they sat in the waiting room and allowed me to have those private conversations and ask the questions that I didn't want to ask in front of mum and dad. I didn't want to feel guilty at them feeling guilty. Mm -hmm. So yeah, slightly different experience of Huntington's um, than most people because I didn't have that isolation and I didn't have that fear factor. Um, which is what's driving me uh, and has driven me ever since, is that there is a positive way to grow up with Huntington's if all the systems are in place to help support a whole family rather than just a single individual. Right. Now, what, what do you think it is about your parents? Because I, I think that's probably less common, especially when you're talking, you know, maybe about a decade ago where, you know, parents really want to encourage that kind of learning about the disease and, and what inevitably is, you know, going to happen as a result. You know, what is it about your parents that you think made them open to really encouraging you to, to pursue that knowledge? First of all, thank you for thinking it was only a decade ago when it was 30 years ago. Um, my parents were, I don't really know how to describe it, but they, they just trusted us and, throughout this whole Huntington's journey, they, they considered us part of their team. Um, you know, so like decisions that were being made in the house, regardless of Huntington's, we, we was made as a family. Um, and they knew what to tell us. They always had this policy, if you have any questions, if you're worried about something, we'll always listen. Um, so it was just something that they wanted to speak about. For my mum, I think she had grown up with my gran who didn't want to speak about it, who didn't want anybody to know about it. And she was like, this is this wasn't how she felt about it. She didn't think we should be ashamed of it. She didn't think we should hide from it. She wanted and valued the support of people. So I think for her, it was really important that that support started within the house. Um, and dad is quite progressive anyway so his whole thing was that well we do this together as a family um, so that involves the kids as much as it involves the husband and wife so we need to do it together so they need to be informed and we need to make sure that they're not scared of this but if they've got questions that we can answer them together. And you know, it's a. I guess it's a. It's a good mistake on my part. Uh, I was. Uh, I was thinking back to um, you know when you first uh, spoke in, in Dresden. So that's why I said a decade. But it, you know, <laughs> it's. It's. Uh, I. I totally understand. You know your your perspective on that. But 
Um, you mentioned the 30 years ago. So your family was involved in in helping kind of start or initiate some of the advocacy there in, in Scotland. What what did that take, and, and what was the result of those efforts? So um, if we go back even further, so around about um, 1983, 1984, um, there, as part of the kind of genome sequencing work that was done with Dr. Wexler, um, and all of that team to try and find the gene, if you like. There, there was samples collected from families all over the world. Um, my family were one of those families, um, and it was led by an amazing uh, doctor from the genetics department called Dr. May. Um, and Dr. May um, had come to my grand's house, um, and basically whoever from the family was available was called to my grand's house to come meet her and talk to her and she basically gave us her kind of first lecture on Huntington's even though at that point in time we'd known about it for about six or seven years but she was just so good at just finding a way to connect with families and understanding that the genetics clinic was possibly not the best place to do that so she spoke to us all and she did uh, skin samples and, and blood samples and things and I have this really clear memory of two uh, ice boxes, uh, a red and a blue one being in there that were collecting these samples um, to, to be taken away that we didn't know at that point in time what they were being taken away to do and how important that was going to be um, for you know getting to where we are today. So that kind of started things and then that led to conversations between the adults and the family kind of going, there must be more of us out there. There must be more families out there and we need to talk to one another because we need to learn about this together. Um, and there was, at that point in time, there was a UK-wide support group that was called Combat um, at that point in time. And uh, they had a couple of meetings, but what was happening was that a lot of the, the funding and things that were raised, all the fundraising was going to a central port and it wasn't coming back to Scotland. So the families worked for a few years to kind of like look at what is it that we want to do. And then in, well, 30 years ago this month, they um, established the first HD service in Scotland. So that was um, in November 1989. Um, and it was the birth of the Scottish Huntington's Association. And one of the big decisions at that point in time was that the running of this organisation will always come down to the the views of families. So families will always be at the heart of that. How how much has that association grown in that time? Since since 1989, I imagine there were only a, a handful of families. What, what kind of growth have you witnessed personally over those years? It is unbelievable really to see the journey that we've taken in 30 years. So in 30 years we have gone from a handful of families sitting around a office table um, in a back street in Glasgow to supporting 1100 HD patients and their whole family across Scotland and we have nine specialist centres, we have a dedicated youth work service that's nationwide. We have a financial wellbeing service. We have a carer service, as well as all the centralised kind of like running of the organisation teams as well. Um, so it's a pretty big enterprise now that supports, we always say we support about between 97 and 90%, 99% of HD families in Scotland because we support everybody that we know of um, but it's still there is still places where this is hidden. Um, but every family in Scotland has access to a service. And by that, I mean, there is a service regardless of where you are in that family. If you're a patient, there's a nurse-led service. If you're a carer, there is a caregiving service. If you are a young person, there is a youth work service. If you are looking to do any sort of insurance or financial planning at any point in your life, there's a financial wellbeing service to support that. So it looks after the whole family. Um, 
across the, the kind of like birth to death. Yeah, that's that's amazing, and that's great to see too. Um, so, I mean, you, you know, your family certainly had a, a part of that, and definitely need to be you know applauded for the work and dedication that's kind of helped it grow to this point. I want to. I, th- I think it oh. com- always comes back to family. So the the thing with the Scottish Huntington's Association mm-hmm. is that it, it started with families, but even to this day. The, their board of directors are made up with at least 50% families and only a family member can hold the chair position within that board because at the final nail should always lie with a family member and the views of families should always be first and foremost. Um, and and that's not to say we don't have a, phen- a phenomenal staff team, we absolutely do, but Scotland's the only place in the, in the world that has a national care framework that brings together every aspect of health, social and community care for Huntington's, those impacted by Huntington's, the whole spectrum, um, which is an amazing feat um, that was done, but it was sponsored by the Scottish Government. It's now been looked at with other neurological conditions. It's, you know, we're groundbreaking in what we've done. Um, So it's been an amazing journey and, and it's been a journey in which they've kept quite quiet about just how much they have achieved now they don't sing their praises enough as far as I'm concerned yeah I, I agree that's you know that's certainly been one of the topics of interest that we've talked about on on other episodes of the podcast which is establishing or trying to establish that multidisciplinary care team um, for patients because it, it really does cut across not just the the care that you get from a neurologist or a physician but you have to take into account how do I how do I plan the finances for my family or how you know how do I plan for these things that you kind of take for granted in you know a normal kind of healthy situation. Completely, and I think that's what makes this really unique, but also why the support has just continued to grow and the the secrecy levels have continued to die because we've we've built it up to be so supportive that people feel empowered to actually speak out about what uh, what's going on, that they never feel judged about their decision-making, uh, regardless of what that decision is, whether to test, not to test, have kids, to not have kids, to speak openly or to, to just acknowledge that it's there. It's non-judgmental, but they have a support team that now when they go to... Uh, an HD clinic, they don't need to start by let's Google Huntington's disease so that the doctor's on the same page as us. Um, there's, there's been every single member of that HD team is, is absolutely informed about the impact of the disease on family life as much as the diagnostics and symptom management. Um, we have a university postgrad certificate um, in Huntington's disease management for health and social care providers to go on we've got the um accredited nursing home training pack which means that we any nursing or care home who take in huntington's patients sign up to learning how to manage hd patients and, and to improve care so all of these things have meant that we're covering all aspects of the disease and that links in back into that national care framework being implemented and, and given that clear pathway so that families don't need to go in and start by saying shall we Google this together to find out what it is? Right. Well, that's great. Hopefully that, you know, this helps get the word out and, and the message out and, um, you know, other other locations, other countries can hopefully get back to you and pick your brain on, how, you know, how do we establish that elsewhere and make that, you know, a best practice model for, for um, you know, families around the world. I, Absolutely. Kat, I want to kind of follow down that path we're, we're talking about care and and you know again the impact on youth um in the article in the hd insights edition you know you talked about being you know essentially 14 years old 15 years old and and having to become the primary caregiver and like you just said a, a few minutes ago you know while still dealing with all those typical teenager things you know going to school uh, balancing friendships and relationships and, and everything else that goes along with that age. Can you describe kind of 
you know, what what was the day to day like for you? What were you know what were the rough patches? What were the what were the the, the moments where things you know really brought things into perspective for you? Um, I think the rough patches didn't come until I was older because that that whole village mentality of you know like we all supported one another so for mum's care in the beginning it was you know she was very independent she was very independent the whole time actually um but mum had lots of people who would look out for her and and help out and support her being independent so if she wanted to go to something in the village hall she didn't need a carer to go with her because she had 60 carers who were there um, and just continued to see her as the person that she had always been, which was lovely. Um, but as her health diminished and we needed extra support, it was actually fighting with the health and social care teams that was the most stressful. Um, and that's why I'm so passionate about the, the national care framework, because that was probably our biggest battle, was just getting people to understand the complexity of the disease and the need for care not to be static, it needs to be dynamic and it needs to be ever changing. Um, and they were the stress points. And, and we were, I was lucky again there because between my dad and my sister and I, we would have turnabout who was having the breakdown that day. So that when one had the breakdown, the other one picked up the slack and the other one had to deal with whatever else was going on. Um, and we just continued to work as a team um, and we always played to our strengths. You know, we didn't try to do everything. We, we played to where our strengths were. My strengths lay more in the personal care aspect um, of looking after mum. Whereas my sister was so good at the paperwork and making sure that what needed to be done through the official channels were getting done. Um, but at the heart of everything, we just ensured we had fun. So if mum wanted to go on holiday with her friends, then she went on holiday with her friends. If she wanted to have people around to the house, she had people around to the house. Um, and the big thing for her was that the kids didn't see her. Look, my um, the extended family's younger kids didn't see her as any different other than Auntie Christine. And I think that was the biggest thing for her because she just loved kids and kids loved her. So they were a big part of her life and they were always a part of her life that actually brought her a lot of joy and stability. So if she was having a day where she was feeling sad or she just didn't want to do anything, the kids were really influential in changing that perspective for her. Um, and that made a difference because she was still seen, uh, she wasn't seen as a Huntington's patient ever. She was always seen as Christine. Um, and that made looking after her much easier in one sense, but because it, it caused her to remain so independent, it made it so difficult to get her to comply with anything as well. Mm. Um, but I, I, wouldn't I wouldn't change that. I wouldn't change that to have a compliant patient just to make it easier to look after because that independence and that spirit of fighting was, was it took her the whole way through the disease. And she never lost her personality. She never lost her spirit or her, just, you know, like her sense of humour. She was, till the very end, really, really sharp with her comebacks. Um, and even when she couldn't speak, she could still write a little bit. Um, and she would very clearly tell you if she was not happy about something or if she wanted something. Um, so I think just being able to, when you were having a bad time, there was always someone, I knew there was always someone at the back of me that would pick me up or pick up the slack to allow me to have a down day or, or time out. That was the big thing that, that really helped with mum's care. And caring for mum was totally different from caring from, for my gran or for other family members because they were all individuals. And Gran's personality was very different from my mum's personality. Gran wanted to hide away from it. And mum wanted to stand up to it and fight it and never let it beat her. So you need to, I think, any advice I would give to anybody when it comes to caring for a Huntington's patient is see the, see the person first. 
and learn who that person is and what is their what's their joys in life and what's their personality and what makes them smile and work on that because it will cut your battle in half by learning about the person um, and it will also help you understand symptoms and what symptoms what's personality a whole lot better uh, that's a that's a powerful story what let me ask you this now when when you meet with um you know youth from around the world or or you know kids or teenagers that are are in a similar position where they're essentially serving as the the primary caregiver for a parent you know even though that that parent may have you know doctors supporting but it's really you know the the, the pressure and the stresses on a on a child or, or or a teen what are you seeing or what do you typically see as as their biggest stress points what do they come to you and say you know, Kat, this, I, I just don't know how to deal with this aspect uh, of, I think of the, life at home. For a lot of the young people that we talk to who are in that sole carer role or main caregiver role, the thing is that they are, they have nobody to hand that off to. And, and the diminished level of self-care that they have, that just keeps diminishing, they keep taking away self-care. Um, and they don't think anybody can do it as good as them. So they, they're holding on to that role as caregiver so tightly because nobody else has, has done it. Or they've tried to get other people to help them and, and they've, you know, they've done something wrong, which is, could have caused harm or it just could have made their life more difficult. And we talk about this a lot with young people where we talk about let's find out what we actually need help with and start small and building it up. And the future planning stuff is really important in that, you know, like if we wait until there's a crisis, then we've got to be reactive. But if we plan, we can be proactive. And one of the big points of being proactive is that we we then plan to do self-care much more readily and much more regularly. Self-care is the only way to care for anybody. If you don't care for yourself first, you'll never be able to sustain caring for another person, especially someone with Huntington's. So that it's about looking at what do you need help with? And if that's that you're not ready to let someone else come in and do personal care or something with your loved one, then can one of your friends or somebody who's seen to you on a daily basis, what can I do to help? Give them something that would help you like if you're going to the shop can you bring me some bread and some milk and some this and some that get them doing that they'll be happy to do it they've offering but make sure it's something that's helpful to you if it's not going to be helpful then that's fine or it could just be saying do you know what i need 10 minutes where i'm just going to rant at you about how rubbish things are at the minute i don't need you to provide me with answers i just need you to listen and sit next to me while I do it or sit on the phone with me while I do it. And actually working with young people or working with anybody to get them to find out what is my care needs for myself and what is my care needs of my loved one is a really powerful journey to go on with someone because when you start breaking things down and getting things planned out, it makes it much easier to manage because you then have those people who are saying to you, how can I help? And if you've got to then go and deal with social services or health and social care providers in some way to say, this is the this is what we need to help care for my person, you've thought about it from a lot of different aspects and you know what, what you need then. Whereas when we wait to crisis point, it's just like, I need a break. I don't know what that looks like, but I know that if you, I, I need a break. And if you look after them, I know I'm going to pay for this in a week's time because I'm having to fight them to go into respite care. And then they're going to hate the whole time they're there. And that's going to be traumatic. So that the next time they come home, I'm going to have to deal with the trauma that they've had. In the, and it just becomes this vicious cycle of nobody can look after them like I do. So I need to do it all. And then you layer on the guilt um, on top of that and it just it, you can see why the impact of Huntington's is not just symptoms that it's it's across the board psychologically and and it really does shape the whole family if we don't 
draw a line in the sand and say, actually, we're going to do this differently. Uh, and I'm forever grateful to my parents for drawing that line in the sand and saying, we're going to do this differently. Because I don't think I would be, uh, I wouldn't be the person I am today. And I certainly wouldn't be doing the job that I am today if it wasn't for them drawing that line in the sand and saying, no, let's do this differently. Yeah, that and that makes perfect sense. And it's sometimes, you you know, the simplest answers you tend to overlook where if you don't take care of yourself, you're just not going to be in the position mentally or even physically maybe to, to help take care of that loved one. And so, you, you you know, you do have to take that time to, to put yourself first and make sure you're... Ab- absolutely. In- yeah. Uh- and, and it doesn't need to be big. You know, a lot of them will come back. I just don't have time. I don't have time, Kat. And, I, and it's like, well, do you go to the bathroom? Yeah, but I don't get peace to go to the bathroom or I don't. This is where we need to start thinking about it. In terms of mental health as a society, we need to start thinking differently about how we use our time. And kind of saying, well, do you know what? Today it's only going to be a minute. It's going to be 60 seconds. I'm going to take 60 seconds to sit and just breathe. And that's self-care for me today because I can manage a minute. And it might be that in two days time, I'm going to have three minutes. And it might be in five days time that I'm going to have two lots of three minutes. And when we start to think about self-care differently and not you need a half day every single week and just have little chunks where we can just recharge then we'll start to build that up differently and we'll start to look at things differently. Um, so when I say self-care to people, they immediately go, well, I can't take a day off. It's like, okay, let's take a minute, a, a minute over a 24-hour period. I want you to find a minute. And all I want you to do is breathe for that minute. I want you to just sit in somewhere quiet and just breathe for a minute. And that's the, that's what we need to do teach people to do if they're in that situation where they don't have time we need to get them to make time because it's so important to do that recharge and that's why we end up with so many crises because we don't take that time to recharge and and have that time out even if we only do a minute a day that minute is what is going to get us through the next 23 hours and 59 minutes We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. Kat, I want to um, switch directions a little bit with you and, and talk about the perspective for how people and professionals deal with, with youth impacted by HD. And, and you talked about a, a story uh, in the story here where you spoke at the World Congress on HD in, in 2007. And my takeaway from that was that the response was, I'll call it adverse. It was it was more of a climate of <laughs> of kind of wanting to shield children from that burden of knowledge. Yeah. Why do you think that was the reaction? And, and and beyond as a follow up, how do you think that's changed in in the time since then? So at that point in time, it was the reaction because it was there were young people were just not included. Um, and, and it was a protective thing and still in a lot of places, you know, you if you speak to any clinician, you'll hear them say that they're speaking to a family who don't want to tell anybody because they don't want them to have this in their head just yet. Um, and that was seen as the right way to do it. It was a protection thing. We didn't have 
the science that we have now in terms of you know like neuroscience and the development of the brain in children and, and understanding that actually being open and honest in an aging stage appropriate manner is much better than hiding things but in 2007 we were we had the youth service the national youth service in scotland and we were dealing with a few hundred kids who we were speaking to on a regular basis who were all saying the same thing I have somebody to talk to now. And the big difference for us was that my experience of being able to talk about it made a huge difference to me, but I didn't know it made a difference to me until I spoke to other young people who didn't have that freedom and didn't have that opportunity. But we were seeing the, the kind of like fruits of our labour in Scotland by these young people were becoming, they were doing self-care, they were much more informed and more educated they were making more informed choices about their future they weren't doing that i've turned 18 i must test because it's the only avenue that i have to information um they had other young people that they could talk to the, the isolation was being reduced and we had young people who wanted to really go out there and share their story and talk to other people about it and I think we were just slightly ahead of the, the curve when we spoke in Dresden and said, this is a really good idea um, and terrified 90% of the room because they were like, you can't do this, this is so bad for kids. We've never done this in the past. But all that did was spear me on to what we were doing was right. You know, I've never been very good at being told not allowed to do something. <laughs> Um, so it kind of just kind of went, okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. So that led to a whole load of things. But one of the, the main things was that um, a, a nurse from Sweden, Karina, um, contacted us at Scot Scottish Huntington's Association and said, what services are available in Europe from people? And we were like, very little. So she did a research project to kind of like interview all of the associations in Europe and kind of came up with only 11 replies and there was only two offering any sort of support to uh, young people. Um, so we started working on a project where there's a, a European pot of money where you can apply to do youth exchanges. So we got together and decided that we were going to do this youth exchange where we would do a youth camp using the kind of Scottish model of camps that it would be about education and peer support as well as having professionals surrounding it to be able to give them somebody to talk to and talk about research. Um, so we applied for money and, and in 2010 we had the first European camp but that came off the back of a whole lot of lobbying that was done to EHDN and, and a couple other places to say we need to include young people, so let's get young people to the World Congress in Vancouver. Um, and, and it was, it was, you know, the, the difference between those two conferences was, was unbelievable because we had 2007 saying no to young people and in 2009 we had young people who were keynote speakers. So they did take us up on it and they did invest in us at that point in time. But the, the youth camp changed an awful lot because we included countries that didn't have any support. We had, I think we had eight countries that eventually sent some young people along. And one of the young people that came along was Matt Ellison. So Matt was one of my young people at the first European youth camp. Um, and he came back and said, I have this idea that I spoke to this guy in America about that I met at Vancouver. And we're thinking that we could do this this website that teaches young people what Huntington's is without using really negative language, but that it's in language that they'll understand. What do you think? Do you think you could help us with it? And that was the kind of birth of HDO. Um, and it was the, the kind of like start of my involvement in HDO was this young person saying, I have an idea. Would you help us? Um, I never... Uh, any point in time in that week did I think that 10 years later I would still be helping with that project and that vision that young people had but 
the, the change and the massive change that it has been over the last nine, ten years has been led by young people. It's not just been led by me and Karina and Inga and the, and the team that did that first uh, youth camp. It was young people who were saying, thank you for the opportunity. We're going to take it and we're going to run with it. And they have, you know, they've lobbied parliaments, they've, they've lobbied local associations, they've badgered people into kind of listening to them, they've been into clinics and saying, you need to listen to what I have to say, I'm much more informed. So we now have a generation of young people who are far more educated about what Huntington's is, um, that are being able to articulate very clearly the impact that Huntington's has in their life and they're able to connect with young people around the world and say, my story and your story are very similar. We just live in very different places. Well, I have to imagine too now, since, you know, uh, HDO were, you know, we're almost going on 10 years, um, you know, since that kind of first emerged, you had young people then that, you know, were doing that lobbying, but now those young people have to be adults. What are some of the success stories where you've seen, you know, kids that were involved earlier are now adults out there helping to push policy or to make changes that help youth going forward? It's, it, you know, it's fascinating some of the stories that we have of what young people have done by giving them the opportunity to just be heard and actually have their story told. So. You know, just from within Scotland, it's, it's made a massive difference from, you know, like it was young people who stood in front of the parliament and lobbied for better care for young people, for, you know, part of the national care framework. Their stories were really powerful um, from young people who have gone into nursing and care professions because they see that as their vacation and they're so good at it because they've learned a level of empathy that you cannot teach um, people. There's um, the amount of young people who have gone into the sciences and, and are now involved in research and not just Huntington's but different diseases but using their personal experiences. Um, young people who are writing about Huntington's um, in a way that we've never had before. Um, sitting on boards of organisations to make a difference to the lives of people who are impacted by Huntington's, to talking to researchers and sharing their story on advisory boards. Um, it's been overwhelmingly fast um, in terms of the change that's happened. Uh, and for me, the, the that's, the speed was unbelievable. I can't tell you how quick it felt because we launched in the February of 2012 and the next EHDN meeting was in September 2012. And the amount of young people who were at that meeting, who were being supported, who were vocal, who were talking to people who were part of the audience, who were on the stage doing presentations, who were having their own working groups, was night and day to where we were just in 2007. And the attitude to young people being there was absolutely 180 because every single scientist, family member, association member who was there was like, they need to be here. They have a place. Well, I can. Which I, was great. Yeah, I can really, you know, I can hear the excitement in your voice when you when you start to talk about that. You know, the involvement by by youth and and how that's grown. Where where do you see HDO continuing to evolve? You know, kind of even short term over the next five years. What uh, you know? What do you hope to accomplish? The big thing for us is we've got, there, there's two main aspects for me that we need to tackle next. Research is going amazingly fast um, and we need, we need to change how we work with young people and young adults um, because predominantly young adults are not seen in clinics um, and they're certainly not seen as patients in clinics because they're not patients at that point in time, they're family members. 
So there's a move that we that HDO can really help to get that group into the clinics and actually start being part of that clinical setup. And it's not necessarily seeing all the doctors and doing all the tests, but it is taking part in research and it is being in there to learn and to share their stories because as treatments evolve and the clinical trials for treatments evolve, young people are actually going to be key to them because we're looking at these gene modifiers or gene therapies or protein lowering treatments that are going to actually be aimed at young people. They're going to be aimed at that prodromal pre-symptomatic group because we've always wanted to ensure that we can keep them as healthy for as long as we can. And um, I can't remember which scientist talked about that golden window between receiving their test results and symptom onset and making that bigger. So that is what we want to do. But if we wait until we have that, we'll not and not engage young people just now we're going to end up expanding that time before these treatments are available. So we need to start thinking differently about how we engage young people and young adults in a clinical process um, and what that looks like and, and how that needs to change in a clinic. So that's one of the things. Um, and I'm excited about that because it's an understood, you know, it's, we're not fighting against a closed door there. Um, but we do have some really good learning that, that we can help with and that we can start really looking at how we change that practice. And it's not to say the current practice is bad, it's just that the current practice doesn't include this population. And if they want them in, we need to change the practice slightly to include them. So that's one thing that I want to do. The other part of it is we need to really fight the fight for juvenile onset Huntington's and paediatric Huntington's because we're not talking about that enough. And because it's so rare and because it's not very well known, even within the Huntington's community, we need to start fighting that fight more. Um, so for us, we need to, as HDO, we want to go and actually find those families and find where they're getting those, those treatments and where they're getting access to services and how can we help improve things for them? And how do we link them up to the specialists in the world, the handful of specialists in the world that know this disease and this aspect of the disease to be able to get better treatment for them. And that's not just within well-established countries that have really good infrastructure, but it's also in countries where they don't have any infrastructure about that. How do we make sure that we get to them as well um, and use the networks that we have for supporting young people, not just with Huntington's, but there, there's networks of supporting young people. How do we use those networks to find these families? So they're probably the two big newer projects that we're looking at. So this registry of juvenile and paediatric Huntington's and, and the work with clinics to, to include young people as part of their clinical model. And we're not, we'll never do this alone. Uh, I think the, the Huntington's, HDU has always looked at this as a partnership. It's a partnership between us as an organisation and young people and families and associations and science and clinics. And if we collectively work together, our strength is is impenetrable. We we can we can solve any problem if we do it together. It's when we get into little silos and don't want to work together that it becomes much more difficult. So for us, it's about how do we work together to do that, which is why the, the importance of having these networks and being able to come to things like HSG conferences and say, we can help you with that and you can help us with this. So let's let's see how we work together is so important. Absolutely. And it's one of the one of the big strengths of the Huntington's community is that everybody's open to that partnership. Um it's, it is so different from other diseases where people kind of still hide their work, whereas the, there is an openness to communicate and to partner and to do things together. Um, and for us, it is about doing things together. It's not about us going in and doing everything or um, somebody else doing something. It's about how do we do this together and play to those strengths. So our strength is X and your strength is Y, but together we're going to solve this. Um, and that's what we want to do. 
you just highlight what young people are telling us and then try and move forward with it. Well, I know we've been privileged at the HSG to work with you and, and continue to look forward to do so. Um, Kat, before we wrap up, there there's one other thing I wanted to give you a chance to talk about, and that's um, the uh, inaugural HDO Young Adult Congress that I, I know was recently announced. Um, it's got to be really exciting for you because it's going to be in Glasgow. Um, so do you just want to talk a little bit about what, uh, what participants can expect and um, what to look forward to for that in May next year? Absolutely. It's um, our biggest project yet. <laughs> so we never do things by half um, at HDU. We always kind of say, oh, we could do that. Um, so Glasgow 2020 is the idea kind of came about from we need to showcase the power of young people and we need to showcase the knowledge of young people. So why not get everybody in a room and let their voices be heard and turn the table on the experts and say, you are now going to learn from the audience. Um, so that's the kind of that's where the idea came from. And it was a bit like saying, we know what happens when we do a camp and that the science and research day at camp is probably the busiest and most exciting day for everybody. And the questions that are asked on those days are, you know, they, they're truly groundbreaking in terms of the, the knowledge that these young people have. And they, they prepare themselves hugely for coming in and asking these questions. Um, and for some of the, the clinicians and the scientists who come along, they get terrified by the questions because they're like, this is like a job interview. I've had easier job interviews or my PhD the defense of my PhD was much easier than talk to you guys. Um, so we wanted to kind of do that, but step up a notch um, and just make sure that one, young people can get support and they can get connected to, to more young people around the world. But we can amplify their voice and say, you keep telling me that you can't get young people to participate. You've got hundreds of them in a room now they're telling you that they want to participate. So what are we going to do to change that? How are we going to allow them to participate? But how are we going to empower them to participate? Um, and that's kind of what we're going to do at Congress is, is to kind of like say, right, okay, you you want to speak to them, they want to speak to you. So let's start having conversations about how we, how we move forward. Um, but also looking at how do we involve young people? I don't necessarily want to keep having to do events just for young people, but how do we manage to make it that young people are part of um, events that happen around the world and that there's 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 a, a track there for them that's, that's not patronising, that's actually really helpful, not just for the young people, but for the, the teams who presenting at it or who are going to be there that they need young people to be there um, and they value their input into that and what goes in partnership with that is support you know we, we talked about that whole going through that hormonal stage or those transitions those early life transitions of you know i'm leaving school i'm getting my first job i'm moving into my first house or um, I'm having to choose life insurance and I have no idea what that means. All of these things are happening as, as our bodies are kind of like coming to the end of our hormonal changes in adolescence. We've just finished a whole pressure time of school and, and there's always relationship complications that end up breaking our hearts or something in there. So all of those life transitions happen in that group while Huntington's is part of it. So if we want them to take part, we need to support them to take part and we need to give them the avenues to have that support because they, they, they are absolutely entitled to it. And we know that if we support young people and we educate young people, they are much more motivated to be part of the solution. So this is just another part of that motivation and that empowerment is to say, okay, you want a platform, here you go. And the young people who've been involved in our committees to, to put the Congress on have been really forthright in saying, we want this um, and we want to be able to do that. But not only do we want to hear from 
the world famous people is who's the young person in their clinic or who's the young person in their lab that's also taking part in this and what's their motivation to be there so we they want to see someone that they can relate to um on that stage as well as having access to that big name person as well who's the rock star that they want to see they're absolutely entitled to but they want to be uh they want to have someone that they can relate to as well on there so it's a mixture of a whole load of things we're really excited about just what will happen when we have a couple hundred young people together who are kind of groundbreaking and what they want to do because the last time young people got together they uh they changed the face of Huntington's by by just being able to talk to one another you know the HDO was born out of that the increase in services for young people around the world grew dramatically since 2009 and that was young people that did that it wasn't there was all of us professionals who were there kind of like engaging and, and ha empowering that opportunity but it was young people who grabbed that opportunity and took it forward um so it's time to to step that volume up again and, and kind of look let's see what they do next so i'm excited to see what they'll do next well i have no doubt that you know it'll be a, a top-notch program you know your the reputation of hto is amazing in the community and you know i know the members of your team go all out to make this a, a meaningful event for for you so we we wish you the best of that and we actually look forward to hearing you know the reports and and the outcomes uh, of that well, uh, congress we hope year. to see you there Absolutely. you're more than welcome <laughs> It's it'd be the perfect time of year to go for sure. <laughs> well, Kat, yes, it's not not too much rain, but not enough sunshine. But <laughs> yeah, well, well, Kat, thanks so much for for taking time out of your schedule to speak with us. Um, this is this has been absolutely great, and I think uh, people, adults and youth that that listen to this will come away with a lot of great advice and a, a lot of. Um, exceptional insights uh, to to incorporate into their you know into their daily lives. So so you know, for me personally, thank you very much for um, joining us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you again for joining us on this episode of HD Insights Podcast. That was an absolutely inspirational conversation with. Cat Martin. Uh, I hope uh, as uh, you all, as I did, um, appreciate her insights uh, and, and experience not only as, as a caregiver um, for a family with Huntington's disease, but as an advocate for HD youth and, and for youth caregivers and the amazing work that they've done in, in Scotland that she's carried into uh, her work with HDO, um, just a, a fascinating organization and, and one that we're really proud uh, at the HSG to, to have worked with. If you do want more information about the Huntington's Disease Youth Organization, I encourage you to go to hdo.org. Um, you'll find more information there about not only their organization, um, but also uh, about the uh, inaugural HDO Young Adult Congress that's coming up in Glasgow in May of 2020. This episode is our last episode of the 2019 calendar year. We thank you for joining us this year and being part of the HD Insights podcast. We look forward to bringing you many more episodes in 2020. But for the next few weeks, we're going to take a bit of a hiatus for the holiday season, and we look to be back with our next episode sometime in mid to late January. So be on the lookout for new episodes starting then. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. 
If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.